How's it going, dude? Yeah, good. Smoke? Nah, I gave up. Yeah, I should. Yeah, you should. Oh, you know that, uh, that unicorn candle? Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Is there any chance you can give it back? Why? Well, me daughter, she's kind of obsessed with unicorns at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was hoping maybe, you know, you can give it back and, you know, I'll uh, try a hundred bucks or something. You're trying to bribe me to give your daughter the unicorn candle? I wouldn't say I'm bribing you. More like I'm asking you a favour, you know? And if you can do it, I'll show a bit of gratitude and try you some cash. Do I look like I need the money? I don't think you look like you need the money. You know how much I'm making a year? What, why are you being a dickhead? Yeah, I think one of us has been a dickhead. Why the fuck would you take a present off a little kid? You're a grown man. What the fuck do you want with a fucking girly candle? Because no, it's kitschy. It's kitschy? Yeah, kitschy. Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in LA, probably best known for casting CBS's Criminal Minds. And please check out my new show on FX called Reservation Dogs, written and directed by Taika Waititi and Sterling Harjo. So speaking of episodics, you know, when you work on a TV show, you become a family. Your family is the cast, the crew, the writers, the designers, production staff. We're together day in, day out, season in, season out. But the directors who come along to direct each episode, they're really more like guests in the house. You know, they're fun to have. They're only there for like two weeks and they leave and somebody else comes in to direct the next episode. And so that means that I've had the privilege of working with many, many directors. In fact, our guest today will appreciate that one of my favorite directors is a stunt woman. Her name is Diana Valentine. Here's to you, Diana. But anyway, it's very rare that a director gets to be part of that family. For one thing, it's extremely exhausting because while one episode is shooting, the next one is supposed to be prepping, which is super complicated. And so to have one director do all of the episodes is nearly physically and mentally impossible. I mean, even if you're doing something called cross-boarding where you kind of inside baseball, where you're shooting multiple episodes at the same time in the same week, the strain on the production can become impossible. So when Dean, Brian, and I watched Mr. Inbetween and we saw that each and every episode was directed by the same person, we just could not fathom it. And the benefit, as we all know, is that there's this intensely consistent vision of the production, but the drawback is you could put that director in the fucking hospital because it's so exhausting. But friends here today in the flesh and very much alive is someone who pulled off the impossible with Mr. Inbetween. Brian, Dean, and I are thrilled to have with us today. And that's my cue, right? Yep. Uh, Nash Edgerton. Oh my God. Our hero is here. We are not worthy. Oh my God. Are you drinking whiskey and Coke? Is that what you're drinking, sir? Hey, now I'm drinking water. Oh, okay. 
say midday. <laughs> well, thank you and welcome. We are, we just can't believe that you're here for one thing, but we got so much to just pick apart in your brain. We've been just marveling at the show and wondering how you guys were going to land it. So I've got a lot of questions to you, especially do you just love rolling cars over? Because that is like a hallmark of uh, the third season. But how are you doing? How are you feeling now that the finale's over? I feel good. It's kind of surreal, you know, when you come to the end of something, you know, it takes a while to know how you really feel about it. But uh, the reaction to the show has been very positive. That's always nice, you know, yeah. especially when um, more so this season, but it happened a bit on season two as well, that the episode started airing while I was still finishing them. Because, you know, like I only delivered episode nine a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And yeah, so I'm thought, still yeah, solving yeah. the episodes as they're coming out and it's really nice when the reaction is positive you know first couple of episodes there and people didn't like them and i still had seven <laughs> you'd be like well why why what am i doing and that happened a bit last season as well like they were coming out mm-hmm. and i'm seeing people's reactions to them while they're airing yes yeah, scott it's, mentioned uh, that when he confronting. talked with us he said that you guys were still kind of trying to figure out how to end it so did that change at all anything you wanted to do the reaction that the early front-loaded episodes were getting, did it do anything? It just keeps your energy going, really. You know, you're affected by how people react just in that way of, okay, maybe what I'm doing is working, but I don't think it changed how the story was going to go in any way. You go in with a plan and you deviate from the plan just by nature of collaboration and ideas mm-hmm. coming from anywhere. You know, a good idea can come from uh, any of your cast or crew members or, you know, and you're informed by the weather you face and the locations you find and the locations you lose and the yeah. cast members you find and the cast members you lose. And, and so an idea you start with is constantly evolving right until you finish it. And you get ideas during post-production and we always end up shooting a couple of other things during posts because as I put the episodes together, I'm like, you know what, I need a moment like this or I need something like this to join these things together because I haven't listened to your interview with Scott yet, but the, the show gets put together in post in a way that you can move anything around with this mm. show to a certain degree. And so by joining certain moments together, I end up going, oh, you know what, I need this to join this or to lengthen this out or to add this quiet moment to the show or so Mm. things are informed as they go yeah he explained how the opening of season three wasn't written as the Mm. opening of season three because lisa said wow that was why did you you decide to do it that way and he went i didn't yeah well that that scene was written to be in a pub and it was in the fifth episode i felt like we'd done so many scenes in pubs and everything and i was like we should set it in a backyard and just have these crims hanging out with their family in a barbecue that felt very aussie and then uh, my five-year-old just kept, because, you know, because Chica's in the show, my five-year-old kept asking, when am I, why can't I be in your show? <laughs> and I was trying to, where can I put her? And so then I got the idea that Graham would be just putting her floaties on, you oh, know, because that's what I was going through. At the time, we were making in summer, like every time she wanted to go for a swim, I'm there putting her floaties on. So I was like, I'll put her in there. Right. Mm. You know, Lisa and I were even talking about it when we are doing the, we watched the finale together, just trying to think if there's a relationship in history and theater of a director and a playwright working closely. And, and I'm sure there is, you know, Elia Kazan with Arthur Miller. But to me, the strength of the show is the relationship between you two, the creative vision that you both shared that 
we see so rarely in this country. And my question is, what is that percentage or balance of like, okay, so Scott's a hell of a writer, you're a hell of a director, but you get that porridge mixed together. Like, what is that blend of ideas and collaboration and the shorthand that goes into the writing and the directing? You know, look, we're very different people, but we both were aiming for the same thing at the end of the day. I think we have a very similar sense of humor. I get his writing and there's something about the two of us that just works. The show would not be the same, obviously, without him. The show works because of the combination. And it's not just him and I. It's him and I and Michelle who produces every episode. The combination of the three of us is what makes the show work. Does he write to your directing style at all, like in the scripts, or is it just something that you kind of pull off the page? No, he writes amazing dialogue and great scenes, and there's very little description in them. They're so minimalist. As we've gone on, like he knows sort of stuff that I'm good at. Once you start knowing the character, you're like, oh, it'd be great to put him in this scenario. The talking of ideas ends up being him, myself, and Michelle and uh, this lady, Brita, who's our script consultant. And the four of us would get together and talk through, you know, what the show would be. And so many things in the show are from our lives. The conversations are either conversations he's had with someone or he's heard with someone or I've had. The Britney stuff is actual conversations that Chicka and I have had. The whole swear jar thing is like her extorting my friends for money. (laughs) And so it just became part of the show. And obviously the scripts of season one kind of existed in the form they were in in 2008. Brittany always existed. Weirdly, that's uh, that's the year she was born. Um, But as we got closer to actually making it, just hanging out, I'd tell story, you know, the whole Santa Claus thing. Is that's how it went down with me and Chica. I accidentally killed off the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy all at once. That wasn't the plan. You know, and Scott's like, oh, can I put that in the show? And so that, and this is before we'd even cast the role. So that dialogue started coming into the show just as we got closer to when we actually had some money to make the show. And then it wasn't until we had to find a kid, Chica actually became an idea of being the kid after, you know, we'd seen like 60 kids. Oh, yeah. And I just could not find someone who could do it. It was my wife's suggestion to try Chica out. And at this point, you know, Chica's never acted before. I've not even considered putting her in the show, even though so many of her scenes are based on her. Carl was like, why don't you try Chica? And I said, because she's never acted before. And if she's no good, I'm not going <laughs> to cast her. And then it's going to be really awkward around the house. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, you don't like anyone else you've seen. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. So I thought, okay, well, how do I broach it with her? Because I have no idea how she's going to do. I know what kind of kid she is. I know she's super fun and smart and cheeky and all that stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's going to be great in front of a camera. Uh, Having done casting, you guys know you can think someone's going to be great and they get in the room and they're not. You have someone come in and audition and their audition's great and then you still don't know whether they're going to be great on set and you have people whose auditions aren't great but they're really good on set and it's like it's such a game and you're just trying to find a combination of people that work well together someone can come in and do the best audition ever but they're not right with this other person you know it's like such a delicate balance i said this to scott i think the thing that i love about this show are the quiet moments that blow up the genre that make it so much more than just a standard kind of hitman story my favorite sequence of scenes is when he and Britty go and they're yeah. bowling 
and they're busting each other's chops and then cut to them sitting at a food counter and they're eating and they don't say a word. They're just looking out and then cut to commercial. Well, that's it's what like, real life's like, right? Yeah, I know. Look, I, I knew the silence would work because when we made, you know, we put a magician together, there's a scene in the magician where Ray and Tony, the guy he's taking to the farm to collect the money and they've gone and got burgers and then they're just sitting there eating and that scene at the table was a scene. There was a whole thing they were arguing about soccer, I think. But when I started cutting The Magician, because Scott had an edit of it, and then I was getting the footage and recutting it, there was a whole section where they're just eating in silence, and it was just an outtake. And I took the whole scene out and just put the silence in. At the time, Scott was like, the scene, you got to have the scene. <laughs> and uh, it's like, I think it needs silence. And to his credit, he let me go with that. And, you know, when it screened at the Sydney Film Festival, it was one of the things people commented about how great these moments of silence were. So I, I already kind of had a sense that that worked with his character. You know, he doesn't need to say a lot to convey wow. so much. Yeah. Yeah. And the show lives in the silences, you know, and it's all the things that aren't said that mean so much in human interaction. And so any chance I get to take words out and have moments of silence, things like, you know, episode one after the whole Graham scene, which was great, I felt like we needed a moment of just Ray doing something at home that was domestic. So Scott and I talked about what that could be. And then I said, I need him to look at himself in some way and not be happy with what he's done. You know, he felt like we'd done the bathroom thing before. And then he said, oh, maybe if I'm washing dishes. And then I'm like, okay, well, yeah, if you're washing dishes and we do it at night, then you can see your reflection in the window. You know? wow. And so that's what it became. And those moments straight after something like that just give you so much in such a little moment. Yeah. And he's so great at that. But back to uh, casting of Chica, I sort of reluctantly agreed to talk to her about it. I said to her, I'm making this show and there's a character your age and are you interested in auditioning for it? Her first thing she said was, what if you don't cast me? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, well, you know, That's look, it's not girl. just up to me. And it's be a fun thing to try. I just treat it as an experiment and just try it out. And it'll be fun just to try. I said, but it's not just up to me. It's up to, you know, some other people as well. But maybe it'll be fun just to try it. So she agreed to try out. And Carla took her to Kirsty McGregor, who does our casting. And I didn't go to the audition. And she did the, the Santa Claus scene, which she had lived through, you know. Anyway, so I called Kirsty that afternoon and I'm like, so how did she do? And she's like, she was pretty awesome. And I'm like, awesome, like I can cast her awesome? And she's like, oh, yeah, you can cast her. Oh, that's great. And I'm like, okay. So I watch it and, yes, she was very good. But still, I'm not casting her. You know? <laughs> and I show Scott and Michelle and they're both like, we got to cast her. You know, like she's the best kid <laughs> we've seen. And I'm like, well, hang on, let's just talk about this because <laughs> how am I directing her? She won't clean a room when I ask her. Like, right. <laughs> I, I want this to be a good experience for her. I don't want people thinking I've cast her because she's my kid. And uh, they're like, she's the best kid we've seen. We've got to cast her. And so I'm like, okay. So I agree to cast her. And then I'm like terrified. The most terrified I've been directing anybody. You know, and I've directed all levels of actors at this point. But, I, I, you know, I just want this to work. I want it to be fun for her and and so I don't tell any of the crew that she's my kid. She's been living with me since she was three and a half. She calls me Nash. <laughs> and she doesn't call me dad. I bring her on set on the first day and she's not done this before and she's just a natural at it. And, you know, and I'm that guy who goes, okay, that was great. Let's do one more. 
you go again. Okay, that was great. Let's do one more. And she, at some point, she goes, "How many one more is this going to be?" You said one more like ten times now. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the boom operator like leans over and he's like, "Where'd you find this kid? She's awesome." <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so for two days, I didn't tell anyone she was my daughter. Ah. When you first said and, that, you asked her if she would do it. I thought you were going to say she said. I'm off for only, Dad. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but it turned out to be like the best thing for me about the show. That relationship I had with her doing that stuff, like I couldn't be more proud of her. And when she came to live with me, I was the intruder on her and her mom's relationship. You know, like, how come you get to sleep in mom's bed? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly this became our thing. Like we did this thing together. Yeah. It totally... Like, we already had a good relationship, but it just shifted our mm. relationship. And so when FX wanted to do a second season and wanted me to direct every episode, that's the reason to direct every episode for me, is mm. I got to do that with mm. her. Do you know? Just on that topic, originally knowing that you had known Scott for so long and looking at Scott and Chicka on screen, and I said, oh, there's no doubt that Scott would have been growing up with her. Nash knew Scott before he even knew Chicka. He, for sure, is Uncle Scott right? I imagine that you and Scott are hunched over the kitchen table, going over scripts, blah, 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 and you're living in each other's pockets and that she'd seen a ton of him. But Scott clarified that not really so much. Yeah, we were living in LA. Scott lives in Melbourne. When we first started, no one was doing half-hour dramas. So people didn't get the format. And then the other thing was no one would let me cast Scott, you know, and I wasn't going to make it unless he was the guy. And uh, Mm. even Scott at some point, like 2012, I was in Melbourne at the Melbourne Film Festival and uh, he says to me, you know, let's cast someone else. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I just wasn't <laughs> like he was willing to let it go. And I just wasn't like I was. No, there was no interest in me making the show if it wasn't him. I just had this gut feeling he was yeah. the right person, even though all I'd seen was the magician. But, you know, unlike everyone else, I'd seen all the rushes of it. I knew what was there. I just had an instinct that he was the guy. And the reaction of fans is there is no one else that can play this role in the world. It's just, it's got to be him. No, I'm sure they wanted you to cast your brother. I'm sure that Mm. that would have greenlit it. Uh, All kinds of people were brought up, but it just wasn't the show to me. You know, and it's funny, like, I think the show is better for how long it took for all our sakes. You know, it's Mm. frustrating. You can see something and no one's willing to go there. And I think it just took time for shows like Atlanta to happen where that format or even more interested to people, or the streaming services that be yeah. more avenues to make stuff. I think those things, then just you know, my cachet as a director had come up enough that people were willing to take a punt on what I was trying to do with the show. That we made the first season for so little money, and then the combination of Chicka being the right age by then, there's so many factors in the mm. show that because of when we made it. He was basically driving cabs and I was off doing other things. And I would only call him when I thought I had something real. Because, you know, I, I felt like I'd said I would try and make this thing happen. And I'm this person that will just keep going until it does. And I would only call when I felt like I had some traction at some point. And I'm sure each time he wouldn't believe it was real. And then one day I called and said, we've got the money. Let's quit your job in Sydney and do it. First of all, just on the topic of casting, I think what a great job Kirsty's done. You just look back at the sheer amount of roles that you've had to cast over the time, and I don't think there's been a false step. It's just been brilliant, so credit to all of you for that. Thank you. But question for you, and this one, Brian and Lisa may already know this, but I don't, and I'm sure a lot of listeners won't either. You've previously said that although it's delivered as a TV show, 
that you mm. blocked and treated Mr. In Between as a film that happens to air in pieces. So firstly, for our audience, what is blocking? And secondly, what does that whole statement that you made, what does that mean practically for someone like me who's not versed in cinema? How does this filmic approach that you're talking about, how does that manifest in what we see on screen? How does that end up making Mr. Inbetween different from another serialized crime show like, say, Mindhunter? Well, I guess look, this is the only TV show I've ever directed. And when I set out to do it, I'd never directed a TV show and I'd only made films. And so I treated it like it was a movie because I, that's all I knew how to do. I shot it like a movie, which, you know, when I say block it out, like when I shot at Ray's house, I shot every scene at Ray's house. Typically a TV show will shoot in blocks and they have different directors. And so one director will do the first two episodes, the next director will do three and four. And so the crew is going in and out the main location multiple times. You know, we didn't have a lot of money and I'm directing every episode. And so we shoot it like a movie. We, we shoot every scene that's involved at this house, every scene that's involved at this location, every scene that's involved in that. And so for the whole season, uh, you did that? No. Yeah, every oh season. Oh, my God, that's insane. That's Yeah, awesome. so, I, so I, on any given day, I could be shooting scenes from episode five, nine, one. Right. So that's called um, cross-boarding. That's what I was saying, cross-boarding. It is so, so complicated. I'm also going in with pre-production like we have multiple directors, but we don't. So, mm. you know, through 14, 12-week shoot or 14-week shoot, I'm only doing four or five-week pre or six-week pre. And still finding locations while shooting and still casting while yeah, shooting yeah, crazy. because we have an on-air date. And so I'm having to prep sequences, casting locations. Did you, did y'all use like, shooting did, the show. did y'all use like second unit directors? Not really. I had a friend on season one shoot a couple of bits. Like I'd send him off with a camera to shoot a couple of bits. Season two, I did a similar thing. Was that Luke? Uh, no, in season one, Sean Crock. Ah, uh, Sean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he that's plays now, Ali's now. Ali's boyfriend. Yeah, I cast a lot of directors as a general rule. <laughs> I just like having other filmmakers on set. Well, and Kieran was fantastic as the bikey press. I mean, that was just yeah. such a great role. Uh, the first guy Ray extorts money out of in season one. He's a director. David Michaud plays right. the young management therapist, mainly a director. Yeah. Abe Forsyth, who plays the main cop in the I Don't Answer Question scene. He's a director. Mira Folks, who plays the yeah. journalist, uh, she directed a film called Judy and Punch. Jeremy Sims hasn't acted in like eight years. He's mostly a director now. Clayton Jacobson, who plays the Russian that mm. Gary goes and sees in season yep. two. He's a director. So I put word out, spoke to some people. One of my associates knows this guy, told story about this fellow who he was buying wheat from. He said when they went to do deal, this guy, he says, you want to see my toys? Toys? Toys. Fuck got a name for this guy? Pidgey. Pidgey. Pidgey like pigeon. Pidgey. Mm. Right. I want to 
pivot. I just want to talk about the finale. What did you want for the finale? What did you want to leave us with? Look, ultimately, no matter what you do, I think you you change your circumstances or whatever, still inside you're you. And Ray, you know, no matter all the stuff he's gone through and what and wanting to change his life, he's still Ray. And I think it was important to me that even though he leaves his circumstances and if these guys are going to poke the bear, the bear's going to come out. Yeah. Yeah. We we just discussed that in the end of the previous episode. At the end, it's like, okay, you want to, I'd try to get away. I'm living out in the middle of nowhere, but you're going to make me go back to work. Fine. All right. Yeah. Away we go. And then, you know, I came to Scott with the idea, which I got the night before we shot the scene, that he should try looking at the audience for a moment. I told him reasons why, and I, which was you put Ray in a situation. The fun part for me with that character is, so, you, get, you know, he goes and knocks on the, the mother of another kid's door and she has no idea who he is because most people don't know who he is, you know, and so... Someone talking back to him, part of the fun as the audience is to go, oh, don't don't talk to him like that. You know, don't say that. Like that mom of the kid who bullies Britney yeah. and she's just like talking shit to him and you're just yeah. like, oh, shit, this is going to go bad, you know. And so part of the fun is knowing what he's capable of, but the character they're in, he's interacting with, they don't. And then as an audience, you get to know what him smiling means. Oh, yeah. Exactly. We've talked about that. Yeah. You know? And so I was yeah. like, when we get to the end, the audience, you look to them, they're going to know. But the two guys in the car aren't going to know. Yeah. And so if you look to them, audience would go, fuck yeah, we know what you're going to do. That was a way of including everybody that had invested in this character. And I said, look, let's just try it. Just ha- try it and just see. And, I, you know, we did one take and I showed him and he goes, oh, yeah, I totally get what you're talking about. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've got to do this. Um, but there's so much power in that, you know, in the look and the, the smile that he has is just so so much meaning behind it and like you just get to know what it means as an audience yeah, yeah trouble uh, we've said before the quieter he gets and the more he smiles when he goes to visit remy and the the henchman at the bottom of the stairs and ray drops his voice and he's getting quieter and quieter and it's like oh yeah he's got no idea he's in big trouble yeah, he doesn't mess him up big time but still a lot of time before doing a scene scott and i will go through it and <laughs> we're both going you don't need to say that. You're like, I don't think I need to say that. We're yeah. constantly stripping out Ray's dialogue. Right. And then even in the edit, like he'll say, we'll, we'll cut half of it out while shooting the scene and then we'll get the edit and then we'll take even more out. Yeah. Like mm. the scene with him and Freddie, he barely says a thing. He did used to yeah. say a lot of stuff, but we're yeah. like, all right, let's try it with less. Nick because said the, the less same he thing. says, the more menacing and the more yeah. scary he is. Nick said the same thing when we interviewed him. He was heartbroken at the amount of dialogue that hit the floor uh, in the final scene with him and Ray in the in the old farmhouse. He said the stuff Oh, well, that, that, that went, came was, down to his speech pattern. I did. I that. shot one take and it was like 16 minutes long. <laughs> and uh, and that was him just talking at the normal pace of Bruce Talks. And I was like, hey, guys, we have a problem. One, we won't make the night. And two, <laughs> it's never going to end up in the show because it's more than half an episode, just this scene alone. And so, yeah, we, we huddled into a room and we're just like, okay, what's the most important stuff? And, you know, and that's tough on an actor, but yeah. Nick's fucking amazing. Yeah. You mentioned the Freddie scene, that last Freddie scene with Ray. The look on Scott's face is just full of disappointment. He's, I know, it's just a really interesting scene. He doesn't go into a rage. He doesn't give him the smile. 
What did that scene mean to you? And why doesn't he just kill Freddie? Well, you know, look, I guess it's up to the audience what they think of why he doesn't kill Freddie. There's kind of multiple reasons. You know, ultimately the show is about relationships and that was an important relationship in his life and he's disappointed and heartbroken in the way that Ray has those feelings. And part of the strength of the character is that he doesn't get angry, big and angry, or he's so subtle. And the more yep. subtle it is, the you know the stronger it is. I think that one scene with Raphael, like at the end, as he's dying, and Ray's mm-hmm. got the gun on him, and he says "fuck you" so quietly. The show just, in so many ways, in so many scenes, defies our expectation. Like it defies what we've seen in the past. The thing that I always go back to is like, there's no fucking monologue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? There's no. I had a puppy dog. It's because well, that doesn't happen in Ray real life. Is- Action. Exactly. <laughs> so Rafi gets the last word ish yeah. until he blows his brains yeah. out. To me, that's just so much more satisfying because as an American audience member, we've been spoon fed so much bullshit. Yeah. Tropes, right. Some- that this is like a cool drink of water. Like, and again, it's about the quiet yeah. of it, you know, that's so powerful you're absolutely yeah yeah Yeah, that i'm sorry that location was an amazing find too that was like the first location we found season three i found i was like i can do this whole sequence there and i like that idea of it ending in this field and i just on that scene with freddie and and ray it's opened the door for me i just really quickly want to hit you with something there's a bunch of homages that you seem to have been doing and it's not least of all pulp fiction as fans have picked up with you know mia and zoe both saying light me up cowboy I don't know whether I'm just overthinking this or not, but did you intentionally do two Sicario call-outs in this last episode? Not intentionally. I did notice when they're walking towards the house, it felt very Sicario, which I love. No, nah, it, was, it was the way that Jason was sitting in the front seat of the passenger uh, of, the, uh, of the cab. It was just like the border crossing scene, the guy that with the neck tats. And I just wondered oh, if right. that was, yeah, no, it was ex- I've never seen anyone sit like that. And when Ray says to. That was just an actor choice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Ray says to Freddie, maybe it's me that made the mistake and he walks out. There's silence between the two characters that I was listening with headphones. And you could hear that classic Sicario. Yeah, right. <clears throat> no, unintentional. Okay. All right. There you go. Me overthinking it. Thank you <laughs> but, for confirming uh, that. But the, the kitchen thing is definitely a, a homage. Yeah. Thing, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the first thing he pulls out of the second drawer is a hammer. Yeah, then he gets the chopper and then he obviously spots some accelerant and goes, oh, I know what I'll do. So why is it that Raphael comes after him at that point? I guess he could have dispatched him when he ended the job after things went cocked up. Why does he wait and then come after him at that point? Why does he need to get rid of him? I know, I, I want know answers. The, I, don't know the, I don't know the exactly <laughs> Raphael's motivations, but he's a messy criminal. And yeah. people make fucking dumb choices. If you talk to cops, they'll tell you how dumb they are. You know, I've got a friend of mine who works homicide and he said they just do things that you and I are not prepared to do. They're not geniuses. The whole thing with, you know, all the choices in the shows, it's just like what would someone really do? Not with what would the character in a movie do? What would someone really do in these scenarios? And a lot of times people just make fucking stupid well, it, choices. You know, yeah, like yeah. having had my wife talk about your show, like I'm sure you've watched so many of those like evil fun. genius, you seen that? Yeah. Like, oh, why yeah. did half? Why did they make half of those decisions surrounding that crime? Like people mm. just do some ridiculous. 
Rafa, Rafa tweaked people like I think nobody else in this entire series, certainly on the socials. He's just so hated. And I know Lisa. Oh, yeah. Lisa, Lisa hates him as well. She, every mean, time she describes him way. as being scuzzy. Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, so to know that Jeremy hasn't acted in eight years and he comes out and pulls that one out, he's just brilliant in that role. I mean, it's, it's genius. I mean, it's like, you know, our level of investment in Ray is high. But at the same time, our level uh, in Rafi is just as high because he's so well drawn and he's so unlikable. Like I yeah. have to have an opinion about him. I, I I'm not gonna. Yeah. I, you know. I just said to. I just said to Jeremy. I just want you to be on your phone all the fucking time. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. That Brian Clark. I just said just. I just want you always to be doing business, always oh. talking on your phone. Your phone's always gonna be ringing. You're always gonna be finishing a phone call. Gonna be just checking in on it talking on it and so he would just ad lib all that stuff you know oh really that was the beauty of having someone like jeremy he would bring stuff to it is there any scene that got cut that you really wish had been kept in anything scott mentioned that he thinks some of the best stuff that you shot unfortunately they had to edit out and that's great discipline is there anything that you can think of there's a nice scene in season two where Brittany and bruce that day where they're just hanging out together mm-hmm. and they, you know, they do the Shakespeare and, and he's watching her on the trampoline. There was a whole other scene where he asks her how much he owes her swearing. <laughs> and she tells him how much. And every time she says something, he swears. So he's like trying to get it up. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's like, you know, I think it's, you know, $12. He's like, ah, oh, bullshit. She's like, $13. He goes, ah, what? It just kept going up. He said, how about I give you a lump sum and I can swear as much as I want? Because I had a friend who used to come around and go, hey, Chica, here's 20 bucks. Just let me talk freely tonight. You know, that's what I'd have friends come around and do. So he says, can I give you a lump sum and I can swear as much as I want? And she's like, what's a lump sum? And he's like, an amount of money. And she's like, well, how much are we talking? And he's like, how about 100 bucks? And she's like, 200. Ah! <laughs> and uh, and he's, he's like, oh, Fuck. She goes, $16, because what he owes is still going up until he's paid this lump sum. So he gives it 200 bucks, and then she goes, well, you still owe me $16. <laughs> so then he goes, you got change for a 20, and she grabs it, and she's like, no, no. And he's like, oh, bullshit. And, uh, she's, and she tries to say a dollar again, and he goes, no, nah, I've paid you the lump sum now, because now he can swear as much as you want. And he's like, shitty, shitty, shit. <laughs> and he just starts swearing at her and then she eventually swears at him for the first time she goes, oh, oh my god uh, yeah, shit. yeah so that yeah, was really fun that, but it yeah. just felt like there was enough moments with them hanging out together that it didn't warrant staying so sometimes there were good things like that but i feel like the right things stayed you know nash we've got a couple of questions from the facebook uh, group the fan group run by uh, cody baum who's been Fantastic. Uh, Cody's been a huge supporter of the show, obviously running the group and promoting it. And he's uh, helped me a lot in getting the message out for the show and for the pod. So he's been really good. Mark Eagle from Singapore says that the people are very concerned and invested in the show. Does Blue Tone own the rights to Mr. Inbetween because he's concerned that they're going to do a remake like LR The Office and cast a whole bunch of Americans? And Is that possible? Anytime that sort of stuff happens, my understanding is they have to come and talk to the creatives gotcha. uh, yep. involved in the show when we were first trying to get the show up someone said to me oh if you make it in australia like you need to hang on to format rights because 
shows get remade and stuff. I'm like, but my aim is to make the show good enough that it doesn't need to be remade. If you make something well, it should work in other countries as is. He goes, oh, that doesn't happen. And I'm like, well, let's see. (laughs) Uh, Randy from South Carolina picked out this little factoid that when you look at the episodes, the title of them are repeated as a line by an actor, Mm. except for one which is Can't Save You. That comes in the interchange between Ray and Ellie as she's telling him that we can't continue. Was there a reason mm. why that particular line left that scene? I can't remember. Is it not still in the scene? No, it's not there. It's gone. It's like she says, oh, you know, about the other guy. I tried to save him. I really, really tried, but I couldn't save him. And then the next scene is a cut to Ray nodding at the door and the bit where she said, and I can't save you. That would have been Can't Save You. So, okay, mm. there was nothing. It wasn't a deep meaning for that. It just was the way. No, it, it would have been in the script and Scott probably, you know, named the episode before we okay. finalised the edit. All right, Nash, we're going to try something new here. You get to be the inaugural participant in the Killer Casting first ever quick hit Q&A. All right, Nash Edgerton, 60 seconds on the clock and your time starts now. At the altar on your wedding day, you lifted the veil to find your bride Carla had replaced herself with a body double. True. Blue Tongue Films comes from your childhood pastime of catching said lizards with little brother Joel. Yeah, we had a Blue Tongue Lizards pet, that's true. True or false, Nash? Come on, clear direction, son. The RV used in Series 3's See You Soon is owned personally by Scott Ryan. False. Your first ever VCR was a Betamax. True. Director John Frankenheimer personally offered to write you a letter of recommendation to NYU Film School. Uh, true. How the fuck did you know that? Age 19. <laughs> age, 19 age 19, you once spent six weeks on remand inspiring Scott to write Series 3 episode Champ. Uh, false. It was your idea for the Jackrabbit Slims reference in I'm Your Girl. No, false. The title of I'm Your Girl comes from the female cab driver scene in The Big Sleep. Not that I'm aware of. Ray's ringtone is false. back in black. False. Freddy's Huntsman spider scare in the office is a nod to your short film Spider. Not that I'm aware of. But the, every- the, the spider wrangler called one of the spiders Nash. <laughs> okay. Two more questions. Scott Ryan personally chooses every song which plays over the closing titles. Uh, not every song, but the majority of them. Finally, the photograph of the young boy that Ray takes out of his dad's top drawer in Before I Went to War is of your own father. False. The two main photos are, one is Scott and one is uh, Nick Chasm. Thank you very much. All right, well done, Nash. And listeners, uh, here's an interesting little fact for you. Nash's recommendation from Frankenheimer came about with Val Kilmer and Brando in immediate proximity. Where did you hear that? Did I say that sometime? <laughs> now, you know, I can't tell you that. I mean, you know, the podcaster's code of ethics applies here. All of our sources remain confidential. So, uh, Nash, just any follow-up on on those uh, quick hits, those 20 quick questions? The, the music, yes. So Scott picks, like, that's one of his things he loves to do. He picks all the tracks. Has he picked every single one? No, but he's picked the majority of them. Some, our editor picks one or two of them. One of our editors suggested one or two of them. One of them, a friend of mine wrote, who also wrote the race phone ring. 
Uh, yeah, um, no, I knew it wasn't, but I've asked that question because it's going to go in the pod and it'll settle it because you wouldn't believe what a thing this is. Yes, it is. No, it's not. No, it's they've been carrying on like we couldn't have drops, back in black when we made season. I know. Yeah. Anyway, I only noticed it in this third series, but that's because I'm slow. How well they were matched, and in the episode title, I've forgotten, but where Ray is told by Raph to dump the girl's body in the pig farm, and the song is the classic '60s power ballad "Stay with Me, Baby," and the lyrics of that first verse match exactly Ray's actions. Something about, I'm going to find a place for me to hang my head over your shoulder and Ray's throwing the girl over his shoulder. It's just yeah. spooky. That first what? verse looks like it's written for the film, uh, for the yeah. episode. Unbelievable. Well, Scott finds a lot of tracks that he likes and then we try them on and see, mm. you know, and then we narrow yeah. them down. And But, yeah, the lyrics matter a lot to him on that and it's just finding the right thing and also until we get in the editing room we don't know exactly how episodes are going to end because of the shifting around of things and that track in particular we all love michelle scott and i love you know it's sometimes getting these old tracks is not easy you have to get because you're trying to get oh, then they have multiple writers right you got to get the rights to them and that one we got right on the day of the mix like we had something Ooh. else in there but we knew we wanted that. Like I was like, I'm adamant this has got to be the track. And we mixed it. But we also had to mix another version with a different track because we weren't 100% we were going to get the rights to it. Hey, seeing as we're speaking of music, the four music videos you worked on for Bob Dylan and your mm. short films, Spider and Bear, folks, if you haven't seen them, go and check them out. They are absolutely sensational. How did you get to work with Bob Dylan? How did that connection come about? Uh, still trying to figure that out myself. I don't know. He, uh, his manager had seen one of my short films. I asked to pitch on one of the videos and I pitched on the video and got the gig. I was living in LA, you know, I'm with a production company there to do commercials and music videos. And that came my way. And then they liked the first video I did. And then I started doing every video for him in a row. Must be Santa is my favorite Christmas song of all time. To find out you directed it was amazing. And oh, did thank all the stunts. You. I put my dad in that video. My dad's like a huge Dylan fan. My dad's in that video. Actually, my That's dad's great. in uh, season three. He's uh, the guy in the hardware, in the store where. Oh, yeah. Oh, Brian's oh, favorite awesome. scene. Awesome. I just <laughs> love it. I just love that. Oh, yeah. cool. Brian, did you have one last thing before we go? I couldn't help but notice. So you're listed uh, as executive producer on Gaslit, which I know they're going to start shooting here pretty quickly and they're casting in earnest. Mm. Are you starting to move more into executive producing, do you think? And how did you get involved with Gaslit? I mean, that's a very American story yeah. based on Slow Burn. Yeah, it was Slow right? Burn. It was called Slow Burn when I was attached to it. So my brother and I were going to direct it. Yeah, oh, we nice. were going to direct every episode of it right up until the last pitch meeting I had was the day LA went into lockdown. I was supposed mm. to be coming to LA to mm. do pitch meeting. I can't remember which network it was with. We'd done a few. And then I couldn't get on the plane because they changed the date. And then the morning of it, they're like, even if I'd flown there, we were going to do the pitch from hotel rooms anyway on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. That was the beginning of Zoom meetings. Anyway, so then it was the show was just in limbo because it's a big budget show. And so a bunch of people liked it, but no one was committing to it because no one knew what was going to happen. During the wait, we got together and did a mini writer's room for season three. Then everywhere went kind of into lockdown and we just worked on the scripts for season three. And then we were ready to go with this and Slow Burn, which is now called Gaslit, didn't know what they were doing. 
you know, my brother was going to be in it as well. And then, you know, my brother took other projects and season three got up. And so then we just became unavailable for it. And uh, so now there's other people doing it. That's a great podcast. And Robbie, who's who's written it, had done a great job with the scripts. It was going to be a fun project to do and something really different for me. We always like to ask people what they're what they watch. What do you watch, Nash? What are you obsessed with anything right now? What's the best thing you've seen recently? Right now, I'm watching Happy Valley, oh, I which I'd never love seen. Love that show! Oh man. oh man! I was like, I started watching it, and I'm like, 20 minutes in, I'm like, I don't know, because it it doesn't look great to start with. But the moment that guy Kevin suggests his dumb prime idea, I was like, holy shit! And now I'm totally hooked. I've got one episode left of season no. one to go. Sarah Lancashire is one of the best actresses on the planet. Fucking love her. Yeah, she was amazing. And then uh, what else? Before that, I watched Over Gone in the Dark, which I hadn't seen, like really into. One show I've never watched that I hear people you know, like in this show. I've never seen The Sopranos. I've never seen an episode never of The Sopranos. Either. And it seems like such a massive commitment at this point. Like, yeah, right. I feel like I'd have to get like tuberculosis or something. <laughs> We're going to lockdown for six weeks, you know. Well, yeah. Whatever you're watching, I'm going to be watching for you for the next thing that you do. I'm just so blown away by the show. And uh, hey, if uh, Kirstie's not available, you know where to find me to cast your next project. <laughs> I would love to work with you. Thanks so much for like, you know, the love you guys have shown the, the show. It's really uh, it's nice to have people get the show and talk about the show. And You paid um, it forward, man. You and Scott. Okay. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, cheers. All right. Well, you've been very generous with us. We really appreciate it. And I uh, can't wait to see what you do next. So for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. All Bye-bye. right. See you guys. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Audio engineering by Dean Laffin. Logo art by April Laffin. Website and Big Fat Opinions courtesy of me, Brian Allen Hill.